Hi everyone, remember me? Duncan Green here with a roundup of posts on from Poverty to Power. Got back from holiday at the weekend and it was a big hour difference. I was in California for a very nice two weeks visiting relatives and driving up the coast, which was marvellous, and seeing friends. Uh, but boy, jet lag is a, is a difficult thing. Um, and I'm only just really surfacing. So if I'm a bit slurred, it's not because I've been at the bottle, it's because I'm still surfacing really. Um, <clears throat> luckily, while I was away, various people who've asked to, who've offered posts to the blog were beavering away. So I was able to um, go straight back into posting when I got back and I'll bring you uh, up to date with, and with them and some of the things I'd posted in advance of going away. So first up, Citizen action for accountability in challenging contexts. What have we learned? This is the, um, the Action for Empowerment and Accountability Research Consortium led by the Institute for Development Studies, IDS, uh, which Oxfam, including me, has been quite involved with. It's now winding up. And what happens with these big five-year, you know, multi-year research programs is when they wind up, they're, they're like, they suddenly start spewing out huge numbers of papers and and both individual papers and then summary papers and policy briefs and it brought to mind a puffball which uh, yeah one of those mush one of those funguses which when you poke it suddenly spews out spores which give rise to future puffballs and i'm sure all of these papers will give rise to future research programs so anyway that was just the metaphor that sprang to mind um and they include one of the other things that uh, such programs do is they get whole issues of a relevant journal, in this case, the Development Policy Review, which is now open access, which is fantastic news. I've been hassling them for years to go open access, and I'm sure nothing to do with me, but they've now gone open access, and that's great. So they've got a whole issue on citizen action for accountability in challenging contexts. Um, and the, the basic research was into how accountability dynamics work in more challenging contexts. Um, and the countries studied were Mozambique, Myanmar, Nigeria, and Pakistan, with a bit of Egypt. So I'm not going to give you the whole thing. There's loads and loads to, to look at and read. But as always, I just uh, started with the introduction and overview, which I thought was very good, by John Gaventa, Anu Joshi, and Colin Anderson. And a couple of bits I just quoted from in the blog. So first on the outcomes and consequences of efforts to achieve improved accountability in, for shorthand, messy places. While our work thus points to important lessons about possibilities and strategies for citizen action, even in challenging settings, you know, Mozambique, Myanmar, Nigeria, Pakistan are nothing if not challenging, what impacts does such action have? The articles in this special issue point to at least four types of outcome. First, in settings where certain issues and voices have long been suppressed, gaining visibility itself becomes an important win, bringing new issues and voices to the public agenda. For instance, an A4EA-supported study of political song in Mozambique points to how this was used to build public awareness of corruption and to publicise and amplify a collective sentiment. Women's protests in Mozambique and Pakistan brought concrete local issues to the public arena, exacting at least recognition of them by government authorities and thus disrupting gendered norms of silence, getting things on the agenda. Second, in settings with a long history of fear and repression, citizen action can create a sense of agency and awareness of rights and skills and capacities for public engagement that may have previously been suppressed. Third, 
Such increased capacity and actions in turn contribute to gaining a response from authorities. In response to women's protests over road safety in Mozambique, for instance, the president of Mozambique came to the community and undertook to improve infrastructure. Bring Back Our Girls secured practical responses from the Nigerian government on issues of security and arguably the release of some of the abductees, those girls that were uh, abducted a few years ago and prompted the creation of the Bring Back Our Girls campaign. Finally, the A4EA studies also point to examples of progressive norm change. These include increased expectations of transparency, changes in a sense of rights as well as obligations and responsibilities, and changes in norms regarding inclusion. Long-standing civil society efforts supported by a donor program in Nigeria made routine the expectation that citizens should have oversight of public works funded by government. Elsewhere, donor support programs on concrete opportunities provided to citizens uh, to question authorities, ask difficult questions and have oversights of public finances potentially indicated increased acceptance of public oversight on the part of authorities. While creating visibility, building political capabilities, exacting responses from authorities and norm change are all important, several of the articles question whether these constitute fundamental shifts in power or contributed to larger systemic change. Gains are often fleeting and sometimes reversed. Instances of political empowerment and women's greater ability to navigate gendered governance norms do not necessarily add up, at least in the short term, to changes in these norms, but did increase abilities to navigate them. What is striking, in my view, about the A4EA findings, compared to the literature on measuring the outcomes of accountability interventions in more stable settings, is that they focus less on the tangible results, like service delivery, and more on the impacts on governance processes and the intermediate gains that may be necessary to create longer-term change. So basically it's, it's changing the landscape, it's changing the language, it's changing the norms, harder to pin down specific outcomes. But these are real things, even though they're harder to measure. Despite the odds faced in settings with long histories of authoritarian rule, small gains can be found, which in turn have the potential to become big, significant building blocks for more systemic change by nurturing a culture of accountability between citizens and sources of authority. Sorry, that wasn't me, that was the paper. And second in the paper, some thoughts on the so what for donors and other outsiders trying to support the accountability agenda. So all these papers always have to say, you know, what are donors and other and NGOs and others do differently as a result of this research? The agenda for strengthening citizen-led accountability, long an important plank in governance reform and democratic assistance, is at a crossroads. On the one hand, in a context of rising authoritarianism and democratic backsliding, the need for ways through which citizens can scrutinise authorities and hold them to account is more critical than ever. But at the same time, the very trend of weakening democratic norms and institutions, along with closing spaces for engagement, makes this harder, posing fundamental challenges for theories of change that focus on citizen-led action as a pathway to improving public accountability. The view among some is that in this new context, the accountability agenda has lost its usefulness. On the contrary, rather than abandon this important agenda, we suggest that a new set of strategies and approaches is needed for it to be effective in the light of diminishing democratic space. How we go about identifying these spaces for action, as well as the issues to be acted upon, is very important. 
While traditional political economy analysis often gives us strong institutional insights, new approaches that capture the citizen eye view are needed to understand and navigate the complex terrain of governance in these settings. In particular, the governance diaries method focused on everyday governance as it is experienced from the perspective of the governed in places with fragmented public authorities, along with civil society observatories used to study changing civic space under COVID-19, and in-depth contextually based approaches work to improve understanding of grievances and triggers of protest. I like that, that's really good. So PEA, political economy analysis, tends to be a look at who the people in power are, what their incentives are, yeah, and you kind of that establishes the space within which a donor can operate. What the this paper is, this research program is arguing is you've got to do the same thing, but looking from the bottom up, you know, and governance diaries, which I've talked about a lot, great methodology in my view, observatories and other bottom up ways of looking at how people are working and thinking and how they experience power is just as necessary. You need to do both. Such bottom-up analysis helps us understand not only the spaces for action, but also which issues are most salient and likely to provoke accountability demands. The issues we find we found that galvanised citizen action were not those normally approached in the social accountability agenda, which often has as its starting point government-delivered public services such as health and education. The Governance Diaries approach found that issues of neighbourhood and village self-governance were most important such as informal social protection schemes, pooling of resources and local rules. In other studies, community safety and security, protection from sexual harassment and access to affordable energy were all flashpoints for collective voice. Understanding which issues are most salient has important implications for donors and other development actors. So it's pretty dense, it's, it's pretty so sophisticated, but I think it, it's really useful and worth studying that, that paper. It's got some very good ideas on how to work in this new, tighter, more constrained space that we find ourselves in. Second post was a guest post by David Martin and Yogesh Gore, and it's got another, it's a fairly heavy week on the blog, I have to say, but bear with me, I think the content is really good. Venture philanthropy and asset-based community-driven development, a marriage made in heaven. So these are two concepts brought together by David and Yogesh. And the, the question they're asking is, what can you achieve with 30 million Canadian dollars and none of the usual constraints faced by official donors and NGOs? That's the challenge for so-called venture philanthropists like us. The Comart Foundation is a mid-sized, family-run Canadian charitable foundation with an endowment of 30 million Canadian dollars and no permanent staff. From our inception in 2000, we saw our mission as investing in grassroots initiatives, particularly in agriculture and Africa. We wanted to learn what works in the real world. We were willing to invest in high risk, high reward initiatives without predetermined outcomes. We were quite prepared to duck and weave during the course of a project in the face of unexpected problems and opportunities. If the result was a viable concept, we hope the bigger, more risk averse funders who did want predictable results from a proven model would then jump in. Great, this is what I want to see foundations doing because they don't have any of the normal uh, constraints of reporting to parliament or or charity law or whatever they've got a bunch of money so use it to try high risk high reward things use it to, to to test out new approaches that other people can pick up and that's what the comart foundation has done so 
Asset-Based Community Development, a handy acronym, ABCD. We had already made an investment with ILRI in East Africa and were aware of the frustration experienced by research institutions because farmers were not just spontaneously picking up the nifty technologies they were putting on their doorsteps. From what we'd seen, we thought ABCD might help. We saw that ABCD uh, farmers who had gone through the process of ABCD were motivated to see their land and their farming skills as an asset to help them out of poverty. As one Ethiopian farmer told us, more important than changing how a farmer does things is changing the mind of the farmer. That is what is happening here and what you will see. This change of mind was coming to see farming as a business. So ABCD, just uh, in brief, is saying, let's, when we go to a community, let's not talk about what it lacks. Let's see what it's got, its assets, and then base a development program around those assets. I love this. It's respectful. It's not colonial. Uh, it's going with what works and what's there already. It's, it seems to me a, a very, very positive and interesting approach. With Cody, we put together a five-year plan for exploring ways to build up ABCD as an accompaniment process, helping communities through alliances with agricultural research institutions. This worked very well, but towards the end of the five years, we discovered a serious flaw in the model. Communities had perhaps inevitably focused on the supply side rather than the demand side. The most dramatic illustration of this was the story of an ambitious ABCD community in Ethiopia that decided to build on their success by getting into dairy. They brilliantly organised the supply side. They organised a 100-plus member co-op, purchased chilling and quality control equipment, set up vet support, underwent all the appropriate training, and then found they couldn't sell their milk. They hadn't done the market research. It was heartbreaking. In response, in 2012, Cody's Yogesh Gore, who's one of the co-authors, created the producer-led value chain model. This involved farmers visiting local markets and establishing market prices, quantity and quality requirements and doing a similar exercise for their farm inputs. They then used these numbers, the product of their own hands-on research, to create a budget for an average farm to establish the profit profitability or not, often not, for a given product. The results were illuminating, as one Ethiopian farmer said, before ABCD, we didn't realise the resources we had. Before the producer-led producer uh, value chain approach, we didn't know which businesses were profitable and which were not. This has helped us choose and plan. We have been sleeping. We didn't realise what we had. So this is kind of striking in a way. It's like, yeah, do your market research before you try and sell something. But uh, yeah, it's providing an, a, an easy way to do it to small farmers who have not done this before. That seems to be the big contribution. We are obviously, we were obviously onto something. For the past 10 years, we've been working with smallholder farmers, women and men in Kenya, Ethiopia and India to build up a robust produce-led value chain, ABCD model that delivers results for them. And we were happy to find that most farmers were quite capable of dealing with numbers and record keeping. They started budgeting for their farm activities, keeping records of their actual revenues and expenses, and then comparing them to the original budget. We now have hundreds of farmers keeping careful business records with those of a farm separate from household records. Lessons learned. ABCD works and is a powerful catalyst for change. It creates agency, builds assets and wealth and above all, dignity. The community chooses its priorities and drives its own development. Outside experts and NGOs are on tap and not on top. Good line. Venture philanthropy works. We have leveraged significant investment from others. The big difficulty is finding NGO partners for communities that respect this fundamental paradigm shift. 
The typical NGO is used to a top-down needs-based, deficit-based approach and usually has a particular approach or product it wants to see adopted, whether the community agrees or not. Another difficulty yet to be addressed, except in a couple of cases like the Self-Employed Women's Association in India, which is a legend in development circles, is sustainability. To date, the ABCD accompaniment process has relied on a benevolent outsider. Ideally, communities or groups of communities would set up structures like co-ops or unions to fulfil this linker role. But they're going to keep doing the research. They're going to bring together the numbers all together next year. Very interesting. Third was by me, uh, a uh, book by Moises Naim called The Revenge of Power. I really liked it, partly because I'm, I'm a sucker for big books. You know, the grand sweep of things, uh, which tries to make sense of disparate events and processes and leaves you feeling a little bit more on top, a little wiser. So Francis Fukuyama's books on the rise of the state, Arjun Chang on the economics of development, Yuan Yuan Ang on China. And I came away from The Revenge of Power feeling like I had a better grasp of the causes and consequences of the craziness of politics over the last few years. Brexit, Trump, Bolsonaro in the Philippines, Orban in Hungary, internet trolls, disinformation, QAnon. It's all gone crazy and Naim is trying to understand it and explain it. And the way he does this is to, is to uh, he's coined this thing called the three Ps. And he talks about 3P autocrats have a formula for a malignant new form of power combining populism, polarisation and post-truth. Populists portray a political realm neatly cleft in two, the corrupt, greedy elite versus the noble and pure, but always betrayed and aggrieved folk, the people. The populist repertoire repeated endlessly includes catastrophism, everything is terrible, the criminalisation of political rivals using external threats, militarization and paramilitarization, crumbling national borders, denigrating experts, attacking the media, undermining checks and balances like the judiciary, messianic delivery. Sound familiar? But there's a more subtle argument in here. Why do 3P autocrats even bother with all the manoeuvring rather than just seizing power like Pinochet in Chile or Mobutu in Zaire in the last century? Naim argues that post-Cold War, these cruder tactics would not work in most places. In a world where people, goods and ideas are constantly on the move and the old instinct to defer to higher-ups or to, to, to tradition is on the wane, any attempt to claim absolute authority is swimming against the historical tide. In the 21st century, new autocratic regimes typically emerge not by toppling democracies by force, but by passing themselves off as democracies. Modern societies have found various ways to check absolute power through a clever institutional design built into the liberal consensus, an interlocking system of government bodies, each guarding the others, each ensuring no single one of them can run off with the power. So the first order of business for leaders aspiring to wield unchecked political power is to bend the institutions of state to their will. And they do this by stealth. More quotes. While their 20th century predecessors set out to destroy the rule of law with brute force, 21st century autocrats undermine it through the corrosive power of insincere mimicry. Wow. While people like Duterte, Bolsonaro or Putin invoking the law may seem risible, the goal is to muddy the waters to create just enough murkiness around the legitimacy of a course of action to allow it to go forward. Hence gerrymandering rather than scrapping elections, stacking electoral commissions and supreme courts rather than simply abolishing them. 
absolute power survives furtively by mimicking the institutions it corrupts. And yet, some of the writing is great. The new authoritarian's tactics are different too. Time was when ultimate censorship came in the form of a knock on the door from the secret police in the middle of the night. In the 21st century, this was replaced by tax audits, fines over recondite regulations, the withdrawal of government advertising budget, and entreaties from mysterious private investors seeking an ownership stake. The pandemic turbocharged this process. COVID was music to the ears of dictators and 3P autocrats. Elections postponed, militaries and autocrats strengthened, democracy weakened by states of emergency. The result, in Naeem's view, is a hollowing out of democracy. Political parties may survive in some form, the way vestigial wings do on flightless birds. Ouch. Ditto other old institutions, legal, media and social, that once mediated between citizens and rulers. At times, this becomes a bit of a lament of the technocrat. So Naim's a former Venezuelan trade minister, and he edited Foreign Policy, which is a magazine for wonks. And he asks, at a deeper, more troubling level, the question is why the followers continue to support populists, even after there is overwhelming evidence that their promises are empty. And they are bent on concentrating power at the expense of their followers' well-being. I, why have they stopped listening to us experts? Damn it. One of the reasons he thinks is that there is too much change for a lot of people in politics lines up along the levels of anxiety that induces and the, uh, along the lines of anxiety that that induces. Sorry, People who are relatively open to new experiences have sorted themselves into the centre left, while the threat averse identify largely with the right. Sorry, I garbled that paragraph, but it's just too much change and people respond to change in different ways. And that has acquired a political expression. There is a great chapter on digital media as a low-cost way to introduce a fire hose of falsehoods into public debate, amplifying FUD, fear, uncertainty and doubt, and overwhelming quaint attempts to win arguments based on evidence and reason. Deepfake videos only just getting started, but will take that deep stabilisation, uh, which is already being used by just about every serious cyber power, to a whole new level. So it's a great book, and I really urge you to read it. I did identify a few weak spots, though. Firstly, to what extent have the elites brought this on themselves? He briefly touches on this, but then reverts to the credulous masses being duped by evil autocrats and their bots, trolls and lies. Second, the elite eye view of politics. This is about those holding formal power. The masses appear from time to time as shapeless blobs of protesters, but these soon subside and normal services resume. So it's a very elitist, top-down approach. Third is Africa. His two cautionary tales of Trump and Putin with a side of Brexit. He does talk about digital politics in Africa, but he seems unaware of the great work of Nanjala Nyabola and her book um, Digital Democracy. His main source on Africa seems to be The Economist. That's not good enough. I mean, he's Venezuelan. He should be you know, part of the decolonization you know, uh, uh, discussion, I think. Fourth, in order to stick to a clean, accessible argument, he sometimes have to, has to respond perform some gravity-defying intellectual contortions, such as lumping together China and Trump as examples of 3P politics. Yeah, there's a stretch there. He ends the book with the inevitable call to arms, but it's a bit vague. It appeals to liberals to step up in fighting lies, criminalised governments, autocratic interference and political cartels, but otherwise he seems pretty gloomy. 
Liberals offer, this is a quote, liberals offer a complicated explanation for why conducting politics in a certain way will lead to the best results for all. Not only is this counter-narrative full of abstract ideas, but it often lacks an identifiable hero and villain. Our good guys are just those willing to commit to a set of abstract ideals and procedural rules, and our bad guys are those who refuse to do so. The entire package can feel lifeless, bloodless, hatched in a lab. I passionately believe it's correct, but I also have to accept that it doesn't get people's adrenaline pumping the way a 3P narrative does. I fear that really puts its... Uh, his the, his finger on it and on this yeah basically this my impression is that he sees the recent defeats for autocrats biden lula many of which happened after he'd written the book as a blip not trump and bolsonaro and that we may be going back to 3p politics after biden and lula i really hope he's wrong last post of the week Food and energy protests signal failures of accountability on a global scale. And this is a guest post by Jeff Halleck and Naomi Hussain. While the world was watching the war in Ukraine, its side effects via rising food and energy prices were also playing out in the form of mass protests about the cost of living crisis in 148 countries. This global wave, unprecedented in world history, tells us that not only is the global economy in bad shape, but political accountability is similarly struggling. In Sierra Leone, for example, by August 2022, food prices were so high that most people were spending most of their income on food alone. Protesters took to the street and one woman, one woman explained why. One, we do not have freedom of speech and two, there's no respect for us, the women. And our economy is down, down, down and the cost of living is very high. Because of it, we're suffering, we're suffering. The government sent in the security forces who fired indiscriminately into the crowds of desperate people. As many as 21 protesters and six police officers were killed in the violence, which President Bio branded terrorism. The horrific events in Sierra Leone were just one episode among thousands in 2022. Cost of living protests are not mere glitches in the global economic machine. They are endemic failures of accountability loud and clear signals that global economic volatility is brewing political trouble worldwide. International development agencies do not usually cast themselves as players in such domestic political events. They rarely acknowledge that they bear some responsibility for these protests and how they are handled. But they should work to prevent violations of people's basic rights and track and draw attention to violent state responses. Above all, they should not make matters worse. From November 2021 to October 2022, the steep rise in food and in particular energy prices in the years since Russia invaded Ukraine triggered more than 12,500 protests across 148 countries about the cost of living. Protests kicked off in all world regions, in democracies and authoritarian states, rich countries and poor. In 30 countries, in 30 countries there were at least 100 events. So they've gone to the Armed Conflict and Location Event Database. So somebody keeps a database of all these uh, protests uh, and violent events. And they went to it and got these 12,500 uh, events and then analysed them. And they came to four conclusions about what these accountability struggles mean for international development. First... Oh, this, this uh, podcast gave me longer than usual. Sorry, but I'll, it's worth it. I'll keep going. 
First, protests are a risky way of defending basic rights. Costs of living protests are the point at which political and civic rights meet economic and social rights. People felt compelled to protest out of fear, desperation, and because they had no other way of being heard, but many governments are increasingly willing to silence them. Second, failure to address protesters' grievances breeds political mistrust and polarisation. Governments that failed to act were seen as corrupt and unaccountable, and episodes of protest fed into political polarisation, with far-right and far-left political groups mobilising around popular discontent. This is why aid agencies pressing for economic reforms during crises need to do their risk and political economy analysis homework. Otherwise, they could contribute to that polarisation. People are resisting unaccountable energy policies. Most 2022 protests were about energy, often featuring complaints that corruption and elite collusion were causing undue price rises. And there's a really good book by Neil McCulloch, Ending Fossil Fuel Subsidies, which, uh, which looks at the politics of this. And fourth, multilateral institutions have a responsibility to consult and engage citizens in their lending programmes. It's not good enough to say, we think this makes good sense economically. You have to look at the politics of this and the likelihood of triggering protests which are going to undermine political stability, and that involves talking to people. International development actors have long regarded cost of living protests uh, as the undesirable but trivial or short-lived side effects of necessary economic reforms. It is more serious than that. When political accountability fails to the extent that people risk mass protest about the cost of living and the elite corruption that leave them unprotected and voiceless, international aid agencies are at least partly responsible. Important message from uh, Naomi Hussain and Jeff Halleck there. And on that note, I'm off to enjoy a lovely sunny afternoon. Have a great weekend. Talk to you next week. Bye.